Hello, welcome to Louder Than Words, the podcast about how ideas improve lives. I'm your host, Jules Pretty. I'm delighted to welcome to the show today Leo Shalquik from the School of Life Sciences and Mina Kumari from the Institute of Economics and Social Research at the University of Essex. Our topic today is on human genetics, fast-changing and evolving world, the roles of genes in diseases and health, the world of epigenetics, biomarkers, gene switches, and the role of culture and society in influencing what goes on inside us. Leo and Mina, warm welcome to the show. Lovely to have you both on. Um, so let's begin a bit with your own interests and expertise. Um, uh, and we're hoping today to show how uh, there's a kind of disciplinary meeting in the middle coming from very different perspectives um, on this whole question of human genetics. So Leo, can we start by you telling us a little bit about genome mapping, how genes are involved in disease and the latest kind of um, standings in this area. Okay, um, so I'm I've changed fields a few times in my uh, in my career. I have a background as a microbiologist and then a mouse geneticist, and now I'm a human geneticist. And what I've been working on for the last uh, decade or so is epigenetics, which is um, the, the way in which a cell remembers, that remembers what kind of cell it's supposed to be and remembers what environment it's been exposed to. So that's part of the very complicated machinery that um, we're starting to understand that regulates how genes are expressed. That, let's come back to epigenetics in just a moment. So, Mina, if you, um, as Leo was saying, influences abroad, you're also a biologist by training, but but working in the kind of social, cultural, environmental side of things yeah. and how that influences health over the life course. Can so, you just yeah. say a bit about that? Yeah, yeah, sure. So I started out as a physiologist, actually. So I'm interested in sort of whole body systems almost. And um, my uh, initially, I was someone who was particularly interested in sort of stress and the biomarkers of stress and uh, then moved into um, sort of from the lab into into sort of population level things, um, working on surveys that uh, um, were in, we're looking at population level health. And my interest is in um, social differences in health. So w why is social advantage associated with, you know, uh, longer lifespans and that sort of thing? And so I started out thinking about um, biology of stress and so we're thinking through um, kind of what do we know on the social, what do we know on the biological, and trying to open those black boxes. And so I've spent quite a lot of my career adding lots of detailed biology to social surveys so we can try and understand at every level, you know, what bits of the social are really interesting in terms of health, what biological pathways are interesting in terms of health. And in doing that, I've added lots of genetics to social surveys, um, epigenetics to social surveys, lots of biological information to social surveys so that we can really try and tease out those pathways. So that's sort of been my trajectory into that. And so I am um, a biologist, a physiologist in a social science unit, because if, you, if you're going to want thinking about, you know, where are the policies, what are the impl implications of it, sort of understanding 
where you intervene, what you intervene with. Um, you kind of need to know it all, both from the from the social to the biological, out to the health. And so it's real fun, as it were, working mm. in a social science unit because then you get to see all of that. So here we are um, as individuals with um, our genes and DNA within us sitting in social worlds. Um, and we know that the influences are working in, in both directions. And, mm. and as you said, Leo, there's something um, about epigenetics now, which is hasn't just emerged, but it's been changing our understanding of the way that genes will work. My guess is that many listeners will have heard of this, but not really understand what we mean by that. Could you just unpack that a little bit for us? Tell us a little bit about what epigenetics is. Okay. Um, well, uh, <clears throat> my my first attempt at doing that is this idea of how does a cell remember? Cell of memory, yeah. So, you know, kind of our memory as a species of what has worked in the past is in our DNA sequence. So that's one form of information storage. But th then there's, you know, what happens during an individual's lifetime. And if you imagine a person is made up of something on the order of 10 trillion cells, and obviously there are many different tissues that make up the body. They're made up of different kinds of cells. So each of those different kinds of cells has the same DNA, but is executing a um, dramatically different program. Um, so another way of thinking of it might be if you're kind of computer-oriented is that the, the DNA is the, is the hard disk and the, there's something else in the, uh, in the RAM of what programs you're running at the moment, right? So classically in molecular biology, we started to find out about you know, what turns the expression of a gene off or on right now. Um, and that was the whole thing about um, promoters, enhancers, transcription factors. But um, what uh, we didn't have, and we're starting to build up now, is an idea of how um, a profile of gene expression like that can be stable over time. Because when cells uh, differentiate to become skin cells or neurons or whatever else, that's permanent. But what happens when that within our life course is, is varying. So you're getting signals yeah. kind of coming in, yeah. as you said, across the life course. So switching being a key word, really. Is that right? Yes, or modulating. So um, a pattern in, in biology through my whole time um, being interested in biology has been we sort of think we understand what's going on, then we uh, investigate it and find out a whole new level of complexity. So some of them have been quite shocking. Like, for example, our genes are not like bacterial genes that are in one piece, but they're, um, they're chopped in pieces, uh, spread out along a larger piece of the genome. And when the RNA is, is copied from it, it's then cut up and spliced together to make the, the message. You know, it was very shocking when that, um, that level of complexity was discovered. So we're starting to find the multiple levels of machinery that is related to how the DNA is packed into the cell. So the, the physical length of the DNA in an individual cell is macroscopic. It's like uh, on the order of a meter. So that's, um, you know, in about 20 molecules, well, 40, because they're two copies, right? 
Um, so they're very long and unimaginably thin fibers, and they're all packed into a cell nucleus, which is about a micrometer across. So uh, you could probably imagine that if you had a quantity of string or something, and you wanted to use parts of it, it probably wouldn't be best to store it willy-nilly smashed into a small volume. So it was obvious from many decades ago that the DNA is, um, is built into a structured thing. So they, and there are chromosomes that in some parts of the cell cycle you can actually see in the light microscope. So built into that structure is parts of it are more and less open to, uh, to transcription. And so, that, so just describe what you mean by transcription. So transcription is the process of making a, a working copy of the DNA, which is an RNA, very chemically similar to DNA, but typically single-stranded. And that's the copy that is then used to produce proteins. And there are other RNAs that have a function that's not being the template for making uh, a protein um, that are part of the regulatory system, part of the translation system. So that more or less openness has to do with a number of different parts of the packing of the DNA. So one of them is histone. So histone is a, is a, a, a set of proteins that, that the DNA binds to. Um, DNA is extremely acidic. The histones are um, slightly basic, so unusual among proteins, and they form a kind of molecular bobbin that several turns of the DNA strand go around. Each of those kind of bobbins of DNA is called a nucleosome. Those are packed to form a primary fiber, which is further packed with other proteins. And um, the histone protein is modified in various ways, so that makes it more and less packy. And so that, uh, that is part of the epigenetic profile that makes some parts of the DNA more accessible and less. And the DNA itself is also modified by the addition of um, methyl groups to cytosine. And that's one of the most um, studied epigenetic marks, as they're called, because it's fairly easy to, to profile. And so when we first uh, were using sort of genome-wide profiles of uh, DNA methylation about a little more than a decade ago, one of the first things we did was try and divide up the variation. Is this the most different between different people or between different tissues from the same person or, or what? And the, the very clear outcome was that every tissue has a dramatically different profile, and those differences are way, diff way more than the differences between people. So the overwhelming thing that you first see with epigenetics is what kind of cells you're looking at. Mm. So I Mino, think, yes. uh, it makes a difference. So obviously, I, I sort of describe myself as someone who's added lots of biology to these social surveys. And one of the th the thing that uh, Leo's just talked about is that you know you've got 
tissue differences, for example, with these methylation marks or with any of these um, epigenetic things that you might want to measure. But when we see a person and ask them to give us a sample, we can't get lots of different tissues. We can't get, you know, we it's uh, when you're working in these sort of surveys, you want people to take part in the survey and you want to make it as easy as it is uh, as you can for them. And so, you, you know, if you ask them for the <laughs> different tissues that might be interesting, a bit of a bit of a fat cell or a bit of a brain, right? You can't do work, it. Is it? Can we stick a needle in so your liver? Let me stick a needle in your liver. Um, so you can't do that. So you, we have to collect with the samples that we've got. And what we did, were, and so I work on the Understanding Society data set. So that's a household panel survey that's been going since 2009. And we um, uh, sent a nurse to participants' homes. What can you get? You can get a blood sample. And so we extracted the DNA from the blood samples that we collected and did some um, genetic measurements. And then we did some of these methylation measurements. Um, but you've got a whole a blood sample. It's got lots of different cell types in it. And you've got to think about, well, how useful is that going to be? Because you've measured something that's peripheral. If you're interested in something that's brain function, it, is it going to be, are you going to be measuring something that's going to tell you something about that? So that's been quite an interesting thing. Um, if you're really interested in you know, why are there social, I don't know, social differences in health? And, and is any of that working through something like methylation? It's got to be working through something that you've been able to measure. And so um, so that's been a real challenge for us, trying to do this in large population work. Could we come then, in thinking about these mechanisms, and you've been talking mm. um, in detail about, about switching on and off, mm the stuff that we have inside us and where that kind of where that switching happens and we live our lives in social and cultural and economic spaces um, what we now know is that the choices that we make or that are forced upon us in the outer world are going to influence the inner world in some kind of way which is what what you've been talking about could you say something about that then in terms of what are these implications of what you've been working on leo and you mean uh, um, for for health at the individual level and then at a at a wider level? What are the implications of this? Has this changed things? Changed our understanding of the life course? So, so I'm interested in life course, and um, do, I do quite a lot of life course epidemiology. And here we're sort of thinking about you know, are, are they are your, is your environment in early life is it that that matters? You know, do, is it uh, what's happening now, and or the you know how much you've been exposed to say adversity and all of those kinds of things. So those sorts of questions I ask with the data, and certainly when we did measure do some of these methylation measurements um, and look to see if uh, thinking about socioeconomic position, for example, is it socioeconomic position in early life or now or the amount that you've experienced throughout your life course? And the data that we, the analysis that we did in, in Understanding Society suggested that it was, you know, it was um, a disadvantage in early life that matters for your, for your measurements, as it were, in adult life. And there's lots of evidence to suggest that, you know, these, these different life course models work differently for different biomarkers. And so for the, for the um, we were looking at a, a sort of biomarkers of ageing. Um, I think you should say something about a bi- what is a biomarker. What is a biomarker so this is something, something else that you're measuring in the yeah. Understanding Society survey. <clears throat> so we use the, the methylation data has been, um, you talked about, you know, Leo talked about um, 
things that stay the same. So you've made a mark and it stayed the same all the way through your life. But other places, the, these marks are changing all the time. And so you can, people have worked on training, sort of looking to see how these have changed with age or look differently with age and have created these kind of algorithms of methylation marks and um, um, that sort of indicate kind of how biologically you old you are and then what people have done with that is to say well is there a difference in the thing that we've calculated for you um, as your biological age and your actual age and if you look a little bit older biologically than your actual age that's a you know that difference might say something about you and then other people uh, people have done research with that which have sort of suggested have you know do they predict um things like mortality better than actual age or independently of actual age and so those biomarkers have been created in understanding society and um we make them available to the academic community if they want to use them and we use that looked and looked and looked at whether you know disadvantage at different times of life courses associated with these biomarkers of age in people as adults and it's it seemed to be early life that was most associated Critical with that, yeah. yeah. So we 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 can't choose the DNA that comes to us, um, but but the the expression of that. I'm not sure we choose the marks either. No, 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 no. <laughs> but the expression and the switching and the moderation is a, is partly a result of internal signals, but external ones through through the life course. And yet, is it is it fair to say that the that the still a kind of prevailing popular view of genetics is is fairly deterministic i'm thinking leo of you know a gene for x a gene for y quite often there'll be a, a piece of kind of popular news that somebody's discovered a gene for something now that happens in certain cases but it's mostly not one thing coding for one health outcome could you just say something about that the the health outcomes and working back so there, there were, uh, there have been some single gene findings, you know, early triumphs of human genetics, things like uh, Huntington disease. In general, uh, you know, hunting for a single gene to determine a um, uh, an outcome hasn't been very successful, and uh, now the 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 current era of human genetics of the last decade. Um, has involved scanning the whole genome in a lot of people uh, to find as many parts of the DNA as as uh, as you can statistically that have something to do with the um, outcome with a particular outcome. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. so <clears throat> in psychiatric genetics, the the example is uh, schizophrenia, which is a rare, drastic, um, you know, the most, you know, kind of the worst uh, psychiatric illness affecting like a percent of the population. And um, with tens of thousands of cases studied, we're at the point where there are hundreds of loci, locations in the genome that have tiny effects on your risk of, of schizophrenia. Now, it was always thought that there was a combination of predisposition and uh, life events that would come come together to to produce illness. So, you know, nobody ever thought it was 100% genetic. 
but you know we're very very far from a gene for schizophrenia and that's without even particularly worrying about whether it's one illness and if you look at depression which is much more common it's probably quite heterogeneous and genetics are even more difficult mm. so if you're taking something in uh, i mean you've got this model as you've described of, of lots of different bits of genes adding a little bit to the story of a thing called schizophrenia or height or other kinds of measures that we would in looking at a, a person we would say this is a characteristic of of yours um just just go that step further about what that then means for interventions health interventions where 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 does that leave us is are we still um are we at the point of wishing still to understand that complexity or do we start to say well there's opportunities for intervention here and they might be social intervention yeah which I think, is what I think, we should do but they might also be drugs or yeah. other kinds of interventions so i Leo. think when 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 the sort of genome-wide association studies that leo's just described first started that was the idea that you know the single the the way that when people were doing these single gene studies what they were doing was saying well we know the biology and we'll look to see if there's a gene in the in a biological pathway of interest and then that will tell us when then we'll find the gene for whatever for heart disease or whatever and that didn't work because you'd you'd have this paper in nature and then somebody else would try and repeat it and it would wouldn't replicate so then once the sequencing was done for the whole genome you could then look across the then the approach became different it's like let's look across the whole genome and see if we can find new biology and so these genome wide association studies were done with the hope that you would be able to identify new biology and that would lead to the development of new drugs and it did work for heart disease there was you know PCSK9 was developed it was an area that was new nobody thought that didn't it didn't make sense when it was first described and all of those things but that work has led on to the development of new sort of therapeutic treatments for heart disease so it has worked in some ways but in terms of um, and that's and that sort of on on the biological end as it were and the sort of drug development and the sort of gwazis have worked um i guess you know, the other the flip side to that is if you've got something that you've got tiny little signals from in the entire genome um sort of what are you going to target if you're sort of thinking about those much more heterogeneous kind of phen- phenotypes or thing outcomes that you're interested mm-hmm. in and so um so, so can you give a, a further example to the schizophrenia one there, one that listeners would understand as something that is very variable and has multiple contributions? Because I can imagine that that there will be opportunities for developing single um, interventions, drug interventions, as it were, mm-hmm. chemical interventions. But then a lot of this is going to be the combination of that with behavioral change and lifestyle choices, again, which might not be choices to many people. They might be things that they have to live with but ultimately it's about how we end up living our lives i was thinking so, of bmi actually the the sort of the idea that um you know you often sort of it's in my genes <laughs> so body mass index yeah body yeah. mass index and the idea that you know you'd be able to sort of identify we we did some work on 
you know, which bits, you know, when we first started looking across the genome for a number of different outcomes, heart disease, various other things, height, and started doing BMI, actually that, and the idea at that time was that you would have these common variations, differences between people, you know, 30% of people have that variant of that gene, six, you know, 70% have the other. So common variation was going to explain common outcomes, common diseases. It sort of hasn't worked out because of the sorts of things that Leo's just talked about. But one of the first um, common variants that was discovered was this gene for obesity. Over time, you know, when the larger and larger studies, actually obesity is the same as well. You've got different uh, different signals from across the genome. And But the first thoughts were that this was now, you know, it would be a place to, we could, we'd be able to treat obesity now that we know something about this gene. And that, that hasn't panned out either. But there has been work on, you know, when all of these, a number of different signals were seen across the genome, what do they tell us about? Do they tell us about satiety? Did they tell us about metabolic pathways? Did they tell us about, you know, all of the other things that go towards someone's body mass index? And um, and so, you know, we kind of learned that for 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 some processes, it, it is about hunger and about satiety and for other things. And then there were some people, there were some kind of genetic signals which suggested that it, you got, you kind of had good metabolism and higher BMI. And so you had these, uh, these sort of thoughts. Didn't seem to add up. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's been interesting to see how it's all panned out and what we've learned and what we've kind of understand from the biology that's been uncovered from these studies. But then when you sort of say, okay, well, if we now look at people who do lots of physical activity or don't do any physical activity at all, um, is it all working in, in the same way? And you see that actually your these genetic markers have less influence if people are doing lots of physical activity. And so you, the, the policy thing is the same, do physical activity, right? But uh, your genetic kind of background, as it were, in, in, in that GE, in that gene environment, um, uh, study um, means that the, the kind of genetics mattered less if you do physical activity. Mm. Mm. Leo, could you say something about the, the Dutch intergenerational study? I mean, it wasn't one study, but the understanding that some of these, you were talking earlier about memory, so related to okay. body mass and health and hunger and people who suffered um, through the period of famine and then those signals appearing to kind of pass on through generations. That's again opening up our understanding of how we live our lives influences what's going on inside us, but also influences future generations. That may be something that people can get their teeth of understanding yeah, my, into. My, so my parents went through that uh, famine. So I, I think I should start by saying some more general things about um, transgenerational epigenetic inheritance. There are lots of transgenerational effects, but in general, they're just parental effects, right? You're affected by your parents. You don't need epigenetics to to know that to, yeah. to explain that. And a lot of discussions, you know, popular discussions of epigenetics, transgenerational effects get um, get a lot of airing, even though they probably don't exist, or they're very small if they do exist, and. And, and actually, if you think about it, that should be obvious because 
There's only one kind of cell that passes from parent to offspring. Right? It's the germ cell. It's egg, egg or sperm. And we have probably uh, Hundreds crudely of, yeah. a thousand yeah. different kinds of cells. Mm -hmm. You know, now we have single cell techniques. We're going to find out it's much more complicated. But let's say a thousand different kinds of cells, they are, each of which has a dramatically different epigenetic profile. That means if if more than one epigenetic if epigenetic profiles that have to do with any other kind of cell are past your offspring, what's the mechanism? How are they they remembered? Because so so that's you know a major obstacle to to um, to the sharp to, to funneling their, of that yeah, thousand to, to one transgenerational and effects. Yeah. And the other thing is the biology we know, like for DNA methylation, there there are two separate rounds of erasure in. Um, in embryogenesis and, and development. So I think what, what was observed from the, from the hunger winter was probably parental effects. And in the, in the field of epigenetics, if, if you're now going to prove that there is a transgenerational epigenetic effect, you have to show that there's a grandparental effect, you know, just to e exclude um, parental effects. So, so the reason that transgenerational epigenetics gets discussed a lot is the man bites dog principle, which is that it, if, if it was shown, it would be really exciting. It would be really, really surprising and exciting. Uh, but, the, but the dull truth is that it's really pretty much only about your lifetime. It's about your lifetime. Okay. So come back to, that's really interesting, come back to childhood stuff again, um, uh, Mina. The the um, Understanding Society survey that is run from the uh, from the Institute for so for Economic and Social Research, social and social ISA, yes, yes. Uh, mm -hmm. ISA Institute for Social and Economic mm -hmm. Research, um, as uh, looking longitudinally and latitudinally at very large numbers of people and tracking mm -hmm. them over a period mm -hmm. of time. Um, and there have been some other studies of this sort. I'm thinking of George Valence's work in Harvard, um, showing the influence of of kind of social contexts upon um, longevity, living mm -hmm. longer. People mm -hmm. with more social relationships live mm -hmm. longer. People mm -hmm. who appeared to be kinder or more understanding of their children lived a bit longer. Mm -hmm. um, so whether those stand up with other kinds of studies, they they raise these questions about about the choices that we make or are able to make during our own life, as you were saying, Leo. Um, childhood is, you pointed to earlier, a really key component, and that obviously opens up lots of policy space for intervention. So what 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 What's can you kind of say something? Can we come about this from a from a perspective of of uh, where we should be intervening and what we should be doing? What what sorts of headlines are kind of coming out of that? So from the biological, I mean, I think I that, think biological and social, okay, so both spaces. Yeah, so I think that um, obviously, with in terms of life course epidemiology, there are a number of. Uh, um, you can think about, you know, the different models of life course epidemiology. So is it all that if you make the difference in childhood, you've, that's it, you've done it and everything else will be better for the rest of your life? Or, you know, the, so that's the sort of sensitive periods, critical periods model. And then there's this sort of accumulation that the amount of adversity or disadvantage or, or you know, um, difficult things that you experience, they kind of add up. And um, so then whenever you intervene, 
you're going to you're going to make it some sort of difference. Um, and then there's this sort of chains model that, you know, the thing that's happening to you in childhood is going to impact um, how the next mm. thing. So if you don't get, I don't know, if you have a depressed mum or something and isn't who isn't talking to you and isn't enriching your life that makes a difference to how you how schooling happens and that and how you do in school might make a difference to the first job that you get if you go the first job you get is during a, rece- a recession and you you don't start a proper career trajectory it might influence what happens to your subsequent career trajectory um you become ill have to retire early and you're poor in you know retirement so that each of those could be a point of intervention and so um i think uh, you know so though you thinking about which of those life course models works best for the for me i sort of think about which of those life course models works best for the different biomarkers that might be interesting looking at so the example i gave earlier was this biomarker of aging which sort of suggested that um um, it was earlier life seemed to matter more for that measure. Um, but for other things, you have different models. So I look at, say, for example, something like an infl- inflammatory markers, and you get slightly different patterns. So if you're thinking about which of those might be most useful for health, then you know which health, cardiovascular disease, um, different cancers and that kind of thing. So it, there's a lot to tease out in each terms of... Each of those of, is a different pattern. Each of those yeah. is a different pattern and each of those then requ- um, requires a different kind of policy engagement. So if you're, you know, uh, if early life matters and what's happening in your early life and family and school matters, then that's a different policy, kind of gives you a different policy lever or imperative than, you know, these sort of um, other things that might be going on in later life. Mm. Yeah. So let's just kind of come to some concluding thoughts about priorities for the future, but also how do we, how do you see, um, you've both painted a picture of, of, increasing understanding (laughs) and complexity exactly as 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 you've said which could lead us to a point where we say it all depends we're not quite sure it's really variable for person to person um and that's falling in a in a kind of public and policy space where people's understanding i think is still much more based on an older model, as you were saying, Leo, that's more deterministic, that if we do understand that I've got this certain thing, whatever it is, tendency or gene or set of genes, that that's going to have a certain kind of outcome. And you've both said it's not as simple as that. It's much more complex. Um, uh, does Do we have any simpler ideas for intervention or are we saying this understanding has led to a much more complex understanding Let's go back to the schizophrenia idea that you were saying earlier, Leo. Where does that leave us in terms of of priorities and for for the future, which are not just research ones, you so know, policy when, ones? So when uh, when we started with genome-wide association studies, the pitch was very much, we'll find new drug targets, right? We'll find some new biology. We'll find some better ways of intervention, which in the case of psychiatric drugs, you know, it would be a great thing if there were better drugs. And it didn't immediately pay off. But I think we're still on the route of investigating the biology. And, um, okay, we found more complexity than we expected. But the, the path is still to, it would be great to have a more comprehensive understanding of biology, and that would give us some insights 
And um, and there's another direction that we're starting to go, which is a better uh, appreciation of how much people vary. So you know those studies like the like the schizophrenia GWAS, um, the, the 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 sacrifice you had to make in order to get a huge sample number was that you had fairly simple clinical information on the person, right? Very little about their social circumstances or anything else. It was just affected or control and maybe age and sex, maybe whether they smoked and, you know, and, and that's it. Um, and also, well, let's just study European ancestry people and avoid the complications of, of possible stratification. That was a reasonable decision at the time. I won't characterize it as a mistake, but now, you know, it's obvious that we've ignored most of the world's variation, and there's a lot more to be found. So fewer and deeper, in that sense, rather than broader and a narrower number of measures. Well, I suppose it well, varies, both, yeah, both of both, those yeah, things, yeah. I think, because um, uh, you know you can you can take the same model but apply it to to more of of the variation that's available. It will be more uh, more informative because genetics is always uh, you're at the mercy of what variation is there? Mm. Mina? Yeah, so I think, I think, so I introduced myself as someone who's interested in sort of social position differences in health. And when I started, there was, there were people who were saying, well, you know, people might be just genetically different from each other. And we can say now that we've done the work, that isn't going to be the explanation for social differences in health. And so we can sort of, you know, the genetics is useful in all of the ways that Leo's just talked about. But for the thing that I'm interested in, it probably isn't going to be. And it's good to know that, right, so that we can concentrate on on other things and sort of thinking about um, what uh, genetics in and of themselves, as it were. So, you know, you, you, uh, I gave an example of a gene-environment interaction earlier on, and maybe there might be something interesting there, but in terms of in and of itself, you, you wouldn't look for genetic differences between people as the explanation for social differences in health. There's other places to look, and that's a useful thing to know. So I guess that's it, when you were saying, oh, it's, is it all too complex for us to even think about? I think that as a sort of um, uh, a story, as it were, is, is an interesting and useful thing to have done. Mm. Um, and then sort of separately from that, all of the, the, the new things that are happening in terms of the population and sort of um, thinking about where we are trying to using genes to try and understand for example I think the, the newest studies are trying to sort of think about well when we don't know why someone has a syndrome or somehow one has an um, uh, illness that's costing the NHS lots of money that th those kinds of things might be some somewhere gen genetics might help and so that's a sort of national saving in the sense of yeah. um, we'll identify that and so, so there's lots of different places but certainly for the social the social is interesting and and it might lead as you were saying earlier to well we know about these kind of interactions but actually the advice is take more exercise yeah. because yeah, we know that works that. for everybody we may yeah. resolve back yeah. to kind of yeah. clear of yeah. outcomes well let's just finish um uh, on on a, a major priority for the future or kind of hope for the future um can you pick on one thing if you're looking forward five years maybe even ten 
where do you think we'll be with with our kind of understanding, but also um, something that will have kind of made improvements to people's lives, you hope? I think it's very uh, it's seductive to think in terms of the great single finding. But um, Mina just made a stupendously interesting and important point, which is that we now know enough about genetics to say that there isn't a major genetic difference between social classes, right? That is that is a conception that people would have had right? in the past. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and there, there's a lot of the incremental knowledge that we're getting from more and more sophisticated understanding of how genetic works that have made huge differences. If you look at cancer in general, right? That's one of our, our big health problems. And survival of many types of cancer has been getting better and better over the years. So that involves optimization of treatment protocols, better understanding of what's going on in cancer. It's not a thing, no, no individual finding you can say, you know, that has bought people another five years. But uh, but the kind of incremental progress on many fronts is buying millions of people a years of so of lots life. of lots of small things. I think we've got this as a theme today. Yeah. Haven't so we? I, th I think lots of small things yeah, adding the, to the, yeah, something exactly. big. Yeah, exactly. The complexity yeah. is not bad uh, in that sense. Uh, it's so complex we can't understand it. What um, what you find is, for, I don't know. For example, the changes that can happen once a cell has become malignant or whatever and sort of identifying what are those changes and can we target them in some way so that we're actually making a sort of a treatment plan for that person that sort of that sort of approach is harnessing that the the thing that the new technology and the complexity and learning about it and sort of making something for them in some ways um and so that 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 sort of uh, things are so complex that we, you know, we can't cope with it. Isn't isn't where we're going? It's the we're using the complexity to sort of for treatments and things like that. Um, in terms of the social and the sort of policy, the policies that work for most people are the ones that you're kind of going to go for, aren't, aren't you? And sort of understanding. For me, the idea was that you know. Um, when I first started looking at, for example, social differences in health, there was an idea that if you didn't have the biology there, it sort of wasn't real, that it was just, you know, you're just observing things. And um, and so really pinning down that biology has been useful for that. And um, we will continue to do that. Good. Thank you very much indeed. Well, Mina Kamari, Leo Shalquick, many thanks. That was Louder Than Words. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. Have a look at the website for more information and do rate the pod if you can. <laughs>